In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, Ezra. It's so, so good to see you. Great. So good to see um, you. Great to have you here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, we've got some good stuff. We've got a good white paper. We're going to dig into a, a 15-year-old book that is more relevant than ever. Uh, but we did want to note— By Elizabeth so, Warren. Let's not bury the lead. Yeah, but that's that. there we go. Got to get people um, to stick with us. Last Friday, we podcasted. We speculated a little bit about how the shutdown might end. And then the shutdown ended. So we just wanted, for clarity, completeness, kind of wrap this up. I mean, Ezra, you you did a great piece about Nancy Pelosi and how essentially, um, you know, this this had brought some some vindication to her. And and how how do you see that? So I, I talked a little bit about this on the weeds last week, but um, before the shutdown, you know, before all this was was going down, Nancy Pelosi's speakership was a little bit of a closely run thing. Not the vote, but within the the Democratic caucus, there was a real feeling that maybe her time had passed. Maybe she wasn't the right person for this era. She was too polarizing. She wasn't going to be a, a correct answer to Donald Trump. Um, Democrats made her promise to be a transitional speaker. And then Nancy Pelosi delivered Trump his single most public political humiliation of his entire career. Um, and, and she did it in a couple of ways. And, and the reason I actually think this is important, the reason it really firmed her up in her caucus is she made a couple decisions here that other possible alternative speakers wouldn't have made. One, which I think was the, the real high risk decision in the whole play, was to cancel the State of the Union, was to de- defer it. Um, and that was based on an idea that uh, Donald Trump is weak and would fold. And she was right. A lot of Politicians in Washington think Donald Trump is strong and will never back down. And Nancy Pelosi, I think, took his measure and was correct that if she just simply never moved, if she never moved off of her position, that there's going to be no money for the wall. If she never moved off of the position that, no, you're not going to come into my house and give a speech while the rest of the government or at least part of the rest of the government is shut down, he would actually fold. And and she was vindicated in that. I mean, I think the other thing you have to say, though, here is that she was really helped in all this by Donald Trump himself, who had created from the start an untenable position that his own party did not want to support. He had taken ownership in that meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer uh, for the shutdown. He said, I would be proud to own a shutdown over border security. So here you had a situation where the public didn't want the government shut down. The Democrats didn't want the government shut down. 
the Republicans didn't want the government shut down. Only Donald Trump was forcing a shutdown. And that was a position where, you know, some people kind of think Donald Trump is not subject to laws of political gravity, but indeed he is. His approval numbers went down. Republicans, as Matt mentioned on the show last week, began breaking in the Senate. Uh, the Democratic alternative got more votes actually than the Republican alternative uh, to, to break in the shutdown. And he eventually just flatly folded. Right now he's saying, you know, if there's not in three weeks and a deal that gives him his wall, he's going to shut it down again or d- declare emergency. I mean, we'll see what he does. It's very hard for me to believe he'll shut it down again. But, you know, he's Donald Trump. He can do whatever he wants. But the the kind of big outcome of this, which I think matters for basically all politics going forward, is Nancy Pelosi's uh, position is very firmed up in her caucus and her status as sort of the, the, the antagonist to Trump is very settled now. And Donald Trump's position is quite weakened. His poll numbers are down. Um, Republicans feel that they got led into uh, a blind alley by him. Um, you know, there's a lot of Democrats who maybe were once frustrated by Pelosi being leader again. They're not now. There are a lot of right. Republicans right now who are very frustrated by Donald Trump being leader. What's interesting, though, is that it's both not true that Donald Trump defies the laws of political gravity and nothing matters. But also, I can always see why people sort of casual politics fans think that it's true because nothing really visible quite seems to happen. You had this shutdown strategy that most Republicans on the Hill, as I understand it, were not really on board for, uh, but Trump really wanted to do it. They were like, okay, like we will go along with this. It failed spectacularly. It like blew up in his face. And then you wake up the next day and it's like nothing has changed. Trump is still out there like having his campaign associates get arrested, uh, doing like weird stuff about how he's making people sign non-disclosure agreements. Mike Pence is doing fundraisers at Donald Trump's hotel, right? Like the whole like orgy of corruption and criminality just continues to spin forward. And again, it continues to be the case that like not a single Republican member of Congress has ever done anything at all to like impede any of this, no matter how it changes from like Trump is flying high. And if we don't do something to check him, the United States is going to collapse into a dictatorship. They do nothing when Trump is riding low. And if we don't do something to check this, he's going to destroy us all in November. Like they do nothing. It's like it's truly remarkable to me the like endless depth of indulgence that congressional Republicans have for Trump when they don't appear to feel that he has earned it. You take the temperature of the Republican caucus, people are like, yep, like this guy, Trump, like he's got it all figured out. And yet there's just incredible amount of deference to him, like with seemingly no stop to it. I mean, I want to come back to Pelosi for a second, because watching this shutdown play out, it really reminded me of like 2009, 2010 era Nancy Pelosi and the way – she, I, I mean, she is someone who, and I think this got a little bit lost in kind of this fight over her speakership, who really has, a, I'm not sure if this was true for you guys, where you were having these memories, because you all covered this, but she was really someone who held her caucus together through some like very challenging, yes. divisive yep. times. And, you know, I think back to the Affordable Care Act, and I think about this press conference she gave 
where it really seemed like the law was not going to pass. And, you know, she had this speech where she was like, you know, if the gate is locked, we'll find the key. If we can't find the key, we're jumping over the gate. Like, if we can't jump over the gate, we'll get an airplane, we'll parachute in. Like, she laid down the law with her caucus at a moment when, you know, it was actually pretty similar to kind of the moment she came into her speakership this time where you have progressives saying it's not good enough and you have, you know, another wing of her, you know, more conservative wing concerned about some of the protections around abortion. And she did this kind of remarkable thing of, you know, getting at the very end of this, getting the House to pass the Senate bill that they didn't really like. And, you know, I don't think that is a, that that was not a given if I if I think back to that era, that there was a pretty decent chance that she could have had a revolt in her caucus. And, and you could have seen it playing out here as well, where you could have seen the Democrats eventually deciding, you know, that we need to do something, that this is getting terrible, that there's these horrific stories of furloughed workers. I really think it speaks to her skill that we saw about a decade ago holding her caucus together and that we're seeing on display again, you know, through this whole shutdown episode. And, you know, as a a minority leader, right, like what minority leaders do primarily is talk. And so frustration would tend to build with Pelosi because she's not like a like a messaging genius, right? But like what the speaker does is actually um, hold lines on policy, right? And she's done very well with that. The battle over the wall and the shutdown was fundamentally not a battle about like talking points and zingers, but it was about while allowing members of the caucus to have different points of view on border security funding and the exact nature of structures on the southern border, there was complete unanimity that the shutdown had to end and that all conversations about anything else had to take place after the shutdown. And that was very clever. That's legislatively clever. That was a position that an ideologically diverse group of Democrats could all hold to while people would have some very different politics. And it made it impossible for Republicans to pick them apart by playing these games about, well, you voted for the Secure Fence Act or, you know, you said you wanted to abolish ICE, this, that or the other thing. Everybody was saying we have to reopen the government. We can negotiate on a separate track, but we have to reopen the government. And like that's the – the essence of that kind of legislative leadership, right, is like what are what are the votes? Like what is the procedural motions that are going to happen? Because now that the government is not shut down, right, the speaker controls the floor agenda. So like members of Congress can say whatever they want about border security and none of it's going to happen. So I, I want to go back to Donald Trump, though, for a minute and, and something you said a few minutes ago, Matt, Donald which Trump, is this feeling people have. Have you? Yes. He's a real estate developer in New York. So you grew up there. You probably have heard of him. Host of The Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, there's this feeling that, you know, you, you wake up the next day and nothing's changed. And I want to kind of keep banging the drum that something does. I don't know if it's changing exactly, but it is happening. So the December jobs numbers, we the economy added and, uh, you know, we don't have revisions yet. But but for what we know, 312,000 jobs in December. It's a really good jobs report. Um, the unemployment rate is 3.9 percent. Like these are these are strong numbers. And yet there was a poll of head to head matchups the other day of Donald Trump against basically like everybody the Democrats might run, you know, like Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, like all of them. And you would see the Democrats kind of move between, you know, like 53 percent and 47 ish percent. But Donald Trump was stuck against every single one of them at 41. And then there was another poll that just came out today. I just saw it in our Slack room asking people, would you 
vote for Donald Trump or not vote or definitely not vote for Donald Trump, 56 percent of Americans say they would definitely not vote for Donald Trump again. So it is a case that like he gets to wake up and keep being president for now. But this is a guy with 3.9 percent unemployment, 312,000 jobs added in December, where 56 percent of the country says that they will not like under any circumstances vote for him again. And he's stuck at 41 percent against any Democrat you can possibly name. That's a really that is an astonishingly bad performance. Like You know, my like the thing I always say that, like, I wish I could see the economy adjusted numbers for Donald Trump. Like, what if the unemployment were 6 percent? Like, where would he be? The other thing that I just want to note about this, because we should, is that one lesson of the shutdown. And it's not a lesson that I think like we are surprised by, but I do think it's a lesson Donald Trump and some Republicans are surprised by, is that the government matters. Donald Trump talked a lot about, you know, you know, maybe we'll have a shutdown that goes for months or even years. Like you could have a year-long shutdown. And here's a guy, he's talking about border security and he shut down the Department of Homeland Security. And so his view clearly is that like nobody's going to be upset by this. Like the, these things don't do anything. What you need is a wall, whether or not like the DHS is operating in a normal way or the TSA is operating in a normal way, nobody cares. And it turns out people care. It turns out government is involved in all of these different parts of our lives. People don't like it when the airports stop working and planes are grounded. People don't like it when they can't get called answered. Obviously, the um, federal employees don't like it when they don't get paychecks. But you really do see with these extended shutdowns, um, and not that this is a good way to find this out and not that we should necessarily need this as the reminder. But yeah, government matters in people's lives. People don't like it when it stops working. Sure does. Okay. So with that, should, should we take take a break and move on to our, our main segment here? Do it. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. All right. Um, so Elizabeth Warren is running for president of the United States, as you have probably heard, part of a, a large field of, of Democrats, um, although one of a smaller number who has actually announced and is out campaigning in Iowa. And if you if you know who Elizabeth Warren is, you probably know her as one of the most left-wing uh, members of the Senate, she was sometimes a thorn in, in Barack Obama's side, has been in the news lately, uh, wealth tax, co-determination proposals, stuff like that. Um, 
Yeah. If but, you know Elizabeth Warren, what you probably know is coded termination proposals. <laughs> <laughs> you know her as 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 right a, there as in the a, word cloud as as a left wing big ideas person, right? Yes. Um, she has been in an interesting evolution throughout her life. Um, she came into electoral politics at a relatively old age for for a United States senator, um, and first sort of became a. a public intellectual about 15 years ago with a book called The Two-Income Track, which um, she'd been an academic. She'd been a professor at, at a variety of law schools, had made it to, to Harvard Law School, was a sort of leading figure in bankruptcy law. But like normal people don't care about bankruptcy law. Um, but she and her daughter tried to write a book for a popular audience that would uh, speak to to a broad public about some political and policy issues, uh, also some personal issues. They, they followed this book up with a, a personal finance book, which is um, unusual. I don't know. You don't, you don't have a lot of presidents who write personal finance books. Um, I, I recently did a, a close read of, of their old book, uh, The Two-Income Trap, and it's it's fascinating reading just because you, you rarely see a politician who writes a book that isn't like a campaign book, right? Like this was a book book. They, they wanted it to be interesting and to sell copies and to change people's minds and was not like designed to win a, a presidential election. And it's, it's also interesting because what it says is kind of different from what Warren is campaigning on or, or even sort of mainstream democratic politics, in part just because it was written a while ago and, and the situation was different, uh, but in part because, you know, there's some, uh, I don't know, people have different ideas when they're not like strictly party politicians, right? Can, can you talk about the the framework of the book? I mean, because in, in 04, what she has there is a really interesting diagnosis of why the American economy is changing. Yeah. That sort of ends up buttressing, like you do a good job, I think, drawing out why the work on bankruptcy reform led to this diagnosis. Yeah. But but could you sort of start there with that big picture? Right. So, you know, it, it, this may be even hard to remember if, if you weren't around, but like back in the mid-aughts, the sort of conventional thing that you heard about America on the right and also in the center was that the American middle class was doing really well. Um, this was before the Great Recession, which made things actually look worse substantively. Uh, but there, there was an argument out there almost exclusively on the left, which said wages have been stagnating for a generation. And the argument you would hear from the right and the center was, no, 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 median household income is way, way up. So that was like a big debate that was happening. Separately, Warren is working in bankruptcy law. And there was this debate about why the bankruptcy rate had been rising. And one important perspective was that the bankruptcy rate has been rising because bankruptcy law is too lax and the consumers are just kind of like overspending and then declaring bankruptcy to get out of their bills and we need to tighten up the rules. And the credit card industry and some other actors um, were really pushing for this. They came close to getting it done in the late Clinton administration, fell short and then succeeded when Bush was president. Warren, in the realm of bankruptcy law, was sort of the leading figure on the opposite side of this, saying that uh, liberal access to bankruptcy is an important part of the American economy and that these rising bankruptcy rates did not reflect excessive profligacy. Basically, Two Income Track was trying to explain how can it be that responsible families are going bankrupt at higher rates even though median household income is rising, right? And so what she says is, look, Household income has been rising primarily because you have more um, married women in the workforce, right? So if you have more workers, you have more household income, even if wages aren't growing up. But then what she says is that those families that now have 
mom and dad both working, they do have higher incomes, but they have less economic stability. And some of that is that along with that second income comes a lot of extra fixed costs. You need to pay for childcare. You need to pay for you know the commute into work. Uh, those sort of uh, accoutrements, right? Then another thing that happens is that people just sort of bid up the cost of the sort of basics of life. You know, people want to buy a home in a good school district. Um, you know, middle class families do. And if everybody gets a second income, then the houses just get more expensive. Right. So you're now like you're locked into this daycare. You're locked into your new house. Uh, college tuitions go up because people are trying to bid their way into that. And what you essentially have is families that now because there's two people working, there's more stuff that can go wrong. Right. There's two different people who could become sick or disabled. There's two different people who could get laid off. Uh, there's no extra person who can sort of become the family extended family caregiver if somebody needs it. There's no uh, mom who isn't working who can go to work if the family needs some extra money. And they have many more financial commitments that it's hard to get out of. So you say, OK, well, we have these assets, but your only asset is your house that you live in and that's tied to your child's education. So you're obviously very reluctant to give all that up. What you've actually created, she says, is this incredibly brittle situation in which families are doing okay until literally anything goes wrong, right? But if one of two people gets laid off, if one of two people gets sick, if extended family people develop disabilities, there's like this whole realm of possible bad things that could happen. And we had been implicitly relying on stay-at-home moms as a kind of all-purpose safety net to like catch these problems. And now we've disarmed ourselves of that and not created a, a viable economy in which families have this kind of security. And so that's why they're going bankrupt, she says. And now with this new bankruptcy legislation that had just passed when she's writing, we're even taking away the security of the bankruptcy process itself. And I, th I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about the argument and one of the things like she has to grapple with in the book that you write about a little bit in your piece, Matt, is how this – she does not read her argument as one against women going into the workplace. And, you know, I think like you wrote – that this book kind of it has a weird alliance with social conservatives. You kind of see it as like a case for how we've structured families and that working really well in a case against this. But can you talk through a little bit about kind of like how how she connects like women in the workforce being a good thing, but also this because it seems like a hard place to kind of pull everything together. Yeah, I mean, I think that what I would say is that the book expresses mixed feelings about this, right? That she says that it is good that women have more opportunities to do these things that they want to do. And that this is very good for someone like Elizabeth Warren, who is a professor at Harvard Law School and has a passionate interest in bankruptcy law, blah, blah, blah. But that also, if you look at it in a sort of cold economic realist way, that like the majority of people do not have super exciting careers, right? Like they're not law school professors and that the majority of women entering the workforce are doing so because you have to, right? It's like to, to make ends meet, families need two earners and that the race this has set off has left families less economically secure than they were before, right? And so she doesn't want to solve this by like 
banning women from working. And as she says, like, you couldn't actually do that anyway, even if, if you wanted to. But I mean, I think that it is Democrats' message about, quote unquote, women's issues is typically crafted by definition, by very successful career professionals, right? By, by people like Elizabeth Warren, right? Like actual United States senators or People in the place to be writing policy. Academics, right. People, and, and this is a book that I think it takes more seriously the perspective of waitresses and, you know, a million other people who have jobs rather than careers and for whom these are not really choices quote unquote, like at all, and who are just dealing with a reality of a changing economy and with the reality that the average household is not necessarily better off in 2005 than they were with the economy of 1975, right? And that's, again, it's to recapture the context, right? Like today, when Donald Trump is president, it's like everybody talks about economic anxiety and wage stagnation and, and blah, 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 blah. But in the mid-aughts, that was a challenging conversation, right? Because the ping pong would go, uh, someone says, wages have been stagnant. And then somebody else says, median incomes are up. And then somebody else says, well, that's just because women have entered the workforce. And then somebody else says, well, are you saying it's bad that women can work outside the house now? And here's Warren, and she's saying not that it's bad that women can work outside the house, but that, yes, I am saying that the economic trajectory in which wages have been flat and all income growth has come from women going to do paid work outside the house has been a bad trend, right? And that we need to fix the economy, not by having women not work, but by having a meaningful change in the structure of the economy. So I think this is um, really, really important to go back to. And I want to frame the context in a slightly different way, in a different conversation that was playing out at about that same time. Uh, sort of policy obsessives will remember that when Barack Obama entered the Senate in 2004. He had this really high-profile hiring coup where he hired Karen Kornblue to be his policy director. And Karen Kornblue was like a very well-known policy person in Washington. She ran a program at the New America Foundation. Um, you know, she had written all these journals. Like, she, she, she was a big deal for a freshman senator to get to be a policy director. And part of the reason she was a big deal uh, was that she was considered one of the real leading people on family policy. She was one of the people who was saying that where the Democratic Party needed to go was to recognize that the structure of American families had changed dramatically over the past 30, 40, 50 years. Um, you had, on the one hand, a lot more two-earner families. On the other hand, you had a lot more single families altogether. And that uh, American social policy had not changed nearly enough to absorb how different American families now looked. And Warren's uh, book is very much a part of that conversation as well. Warren's book is really saying that we have a pretty new structure in the American household and we have a, a, a social safety net. We have an economy. We have work expectations, by the way, right? Like what corporations ask of people, you know, do you get paid leave in a world where one, there's always like the mom at home? Whether or not the dad gets a lot of paid leave, like he should, it's a matter of fairness, it's a matter of decency, but it's not like a matter of like household survival in the same way that if you don't, ha if you have a two family home or a, a single earner home and there's no paid leave, if something like goes wrong with the kid, the, the parent loses their job um, or, you know, has to find some answer that, that that is totally unclear for their child. And so Warren is partially in this. And then I think what's interesting is we, we know obviously Warren now as a, a critic of the banks and, and, and this real 
industrial populist. But these things are pretty connected because one of the ways to think about the the run up in, in housing debt is that the credit markets were used as a like a secondary social right. safety system. People were taking out second mortgages on homes. They were taking out, you know, they were putting more on, on, on the credit card. And as long as there was a big credit bubble, it papered over what was going wrong in the fun, in the underlying economy. As long as like people were able to access easy credit whenever they had a problem, like that kind of like it filled in the gaps in the system. And then the the bubble bursts and it's all these people who have been, you know, doing their doing their damn best and, you know, taking out second mortgages and like doing everything they can to stay afloat who really are the losers. Well, meanwhile, like the people at the top of the banks get out fine and and remain rich. And I mean, this offends Warren in a very deep way and it it, it forges a lot of her politics. But something that I think is it, it, this whole thing speaks to is that a lot of our politics right now are aftermath politics of the financial crisis itself. Yes. And they are a little bit about whether or not we did enough to punish the banks, whether or not we did enough to restructure those parts of the economy, whether or not corporations have amassed too much power and ha- sort of operate in, a, to some degree, a lawless, but much more to the the point, I think, a normless space where it's like they just pay themselves and their, their executives and shareholders whatever they want. They completely forget about their workers. Um, there's also, though, uh, I think this thing predating it that the people need to go back to and think about, which is how would you create a social safety system for this era? Like, what do you need in a world where you have a lot of two earner families and a lot of single income families, um, not just sort of, you know, male breadwinner, female stay at home mother world. And it would be interesting to see Democrats take that on more directly. Funnily enough, Hillary Clinton always had a lot of ideas about this that she never really pulled together into a message. Um, I remember having discussions with her staff early on and they were saying to me that, you know, when I would be like, well, what's Hillary Clinton's big idea? And they'd be like, maternity leave, like like this world of making families work is a big idea, but she never really presented it that way. But she was always very influenced by by this dimension. And I think it'll be interesting to see if Warren or anyone else sort of picks this up. There's a lot of discussion in the Democratic Party right now about cracking down on corporations and about increasing sort of incomes, but not that much um, about like, how do you make this life people are now actually leading just easier? Like, how do you make it more doable? So I think one of the things that kind of strikes me as interesting about this book is where it where it ends. Like you point out in your essay, Matt, that you point out this really fundamental problem and it's this massive study they've done of thousands of families and how they go bankrupt. And it's a huge structural change to how America works. And then it ends with these kind of small ball policy things, you know, like changing bank regulations, changing how school zoning works. When it actually seems like the type of book, you know, if it were written – today would like end with a call for some kind of like European-esque welfare state that really can provide, you know, the, I think, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the thing that the stay-at-home parent was providing was essentially an insurance policy against someone getting sick, against someone losing their job, you know, and what we see in other countries is more robust insurance policies provided through a safety net where you have subsidized childcare, so that fixed cost goes away. You have a medical system that is not going to leave people saddled with debts they can't pay. You have subsidized higher education. You, you It seems like a book that calls for – that actually rises to meet the moment we're in now when Bernie Sanders is kind of dragging the party towards these ideas – but, you know, a, a book that wasn't written at the moment when, like, this is where 
Democrats and liberals were were at on these particular issues. Right. And I mean, I, I think to Warren's credit, what you see is, you know, she wrote this book. It has this powerful diagnosis. She is a specialist in bankruptcy law, right? And it proposes some very ambitious changes in the area of policy that she is most personally familiar with, and then some fairly superficial changes in other areas. And now over the next 15 years, right, as she's gone from being a law professor to a public intellectual to a politician, she takes on a broader and broader suite of topics and I think now has a policy agenda that you can think of as being equal to the challenge that she laid out in the book. It was striking to me, though, like just her discussion of the bankruptcy legislation, right, which today is not like that well remembered as a, as a policy fight, right? But she talks about a number of people who are still big players in politics today. And one thing she recounts is how Chuck Schumer sank the initial version of this bankruptcy bill by insisting that it needed to include um, basically a provision that would make it harder for anti-abortion groups to declare bankruptcy to get out of uh, legal fees that they were owed, right? That like Schumer really like he basically like he he went to war on behalf of the pro-choice lobby to like get a poison pill put into this that led to the bill being scuttled. Uh, but then in the next go round, right, like the banks got the pro-life groups to give way and like let Schumer get his sort of pro-abortion thing in there. And then Schumer voted for the bill. Right. So it's like both like the Republican Party was happy to sell out the pro-life groups to get this bankruptcy package done. And Chuck Schumer was willing to like fight tooth and nail on this abortion issue, but like ultimately sided with the banks. She talks about Hillary Clinton, who as first lady, Warren had spoken to about this bill and she expressed a lot of opposition to it and and did some stuff that helped scuttle it. Then later, Hillary Clinton becomes a senator from New York. Uh, It's a major banking center. She votes for the bill. Um, And she talks uh, extensively about Joe Biden, um, who is possibly going to be in the race in 2020 in a sort of metaphorical sense, is already in the race. Um, She is uh, very displeased with his record of activism uh, on behalf of the credit card industry. And she writes, you know, she she doesn't just have some tough words for Biden, but some tough words for progressive groups. She talks about how Biden was being given uh, an award by um, a feminist organization for his work on the Violence Against Women Act uh, at the very same time he was putting this bankruptcy bill forward. And she makes the argument that, These bankruptcy abuses and and banking abuses really disproportionately impact women and that she wants to see uh, feminist organizations think of these economic justice concerns as important women's issues. Uh, She talks about um, the NAACP and other civil rights groups pushing for banks to make more credit available to African-American communities but not being nearly as concerned about the impact of predatory lending. Uh, on those kinds of communities. And it's it's tough. I think if you're running a presidential primary campaign, you're probably going to end up wishing you hadn't said some of that stuff about major progressive groups. But it also speaks to, I think, a potentially correct like path forward in American 
politics, right? Like there's been these kind of endless um, wheel spinnings about Trump voters and and, uh, 2016 and, and 2020. And, you know, this is Warren in a number of ways in this book is speaking very squarely to like the opposite of the Howard Schultz constituency, to like people who have some serious economic grievances in America and who aren't necessarily hardcore cultural conservatives, but who aren't who don't strongly identify with progressive cultural politics, right? Like that's who this book really speaks to, is to people who have progressive economic ideas and moderate to indifferent kind of ideas on on social and cultural war issues. And she's critical of progressive groups for overemphasizing basically pure cultural war concerns relative to uh, concrete material interests. So here's my question. Is it actually true, as you say, that the scale of Warren's ideas now match the diagnosis of the book? Uh, I do agree that the scale of Warren's ideas are now much, much bigger, but they really feel to me to be a package of ideas that is about responding to the financial crisis. And what what I would sort of term like the crisis of fairness that uh, and power that Warren saw in that. Warren is really running, I think, as a critic of capitalism as it exists in, in like sort of like capitalism, capitalist power as it exists in America in the 21st century. So she's his co-determination proposal to put workers on, on corporate boards. She talks a lot about breaking up banks. Um, she she's a she's a really interesting raft of ideas about government corruption. I mean, I if you're looking at sort of like how the bankruptcy bill passed, like she's very much on that. But when I think about the underlying analysis of the two income trap, and in particular, it's analysis of the way positional and necessary goods are eating up even the gains grabbed by by, by dual income families. Um, healthcare was getting more expensive, being in a good school district, college costs keep going up, uh, child care keeps going up. I, I think you actually end up somewhere closer to what I think of as like the Bernie Sanders policy agenda, which is fundamentally taking healthcare costs college costs potentially. I don't know if he's actually on a pre uh, a big sort of universal pre-K guy, but I'm sure he's not against it. You know, his sort of idea to take a lot of these things for middle class and working class families basically out of the market and make them things that are provided by the state on a sliding income scale or on no income scale at all, depending on how on how you think about his different tax ideas. Warren's current platform as like a critic and reformer of financialized capitalism seems very responsive to actually in a funny way Bernie Sanders's critiques of power and Bernie Sanders's actual platform as a social democrat who wants to build a much more expansive social safety net and pull a lot of ideas out of the neoliberal marketplace seems very responsive to Warren's two income trap hypothesis they they almost seem like like candidates whose diagnoses and answers are slightly are, are slightly misaligned I mean, I think it's true that if you want to, like, schematize Warren versus Sanders, like, that's the way to do it. But, like, also officially, right, like, Warren is a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bill. She's a co-sponsor of the Free College bill, right? So she's, like, also for this same expansive welfare state, which would make a huge – I mean, particularly the medical care thing, right? I mean, if you think of the bankruptcy issue as fundamentally a a risk issue, right, the way in which in the U.S. a serious illness can both cost you a lot of money but also cost you your job but also losing your job can cost you your health insurance is this like real black hole of 
risk, right? And if I wanted to make like a strong case for why we actually need the like politically unpalatable Big Bang transformation that like Bernie's talking about, I actually think that like tail risk part of it that Warren is concerned with is one of the better reasons, right, to like universalize the whole system. The other thing I would say is that Warren has specifically introduced legislation on the housing issue, which is, I think, more sophisticated and further reaching than what we've seen from other candidates. That Kamala Harris has a kind of um, – I mean, it's weird given everybody's positioning, right? But it's like Harris's housing bill is the most like crude left housing proposal that I've seen from Democrats, which is basically like take a gigantic dump truck of money and like throw it on housing subsidies, uh, whereas Warren has a proposal that it does invest a good deal of money, but it's aimed at specifically tackling redlining type problems in communities of color and, you know, access to credit where there's too little, while then cracking down on sort of like excessive access to credit where it creates financial instability. And then third on uh, my personal obsession of exclusionary zoning, right? And this is back to what she was saying about like, it doesn't help us to all get extra money if all we do with the extra money is bid against each other for houses in good school districts. So the houses all get more expensive and the only person who wins is like a homeowner from 40 years ago. Um, and, and so, you know, that's the issue where I think Warren is most squarely connecting this concern about like real middle class living standards with policy in a way that other Democrats aren't. Uh, because that's a very um, neoliberal coded sort of centristy concern. But like she sees a real connection between that and the same, like the exact same motivating factors that would drive you to a Medicare for all type position. Whenever you think about 2020, like at least whenever I do, you look at these candidates and you look at this like big old ream of stuff they're talking about and then you're like, okay, but like, like what are you actually, actually going to do? Right. And then that does become different. Right. Like it seems like like the one thing you're sure President Warren is going to do is be like the avenging angel of like banks breaking the law. Right. Like that is like within the president's power to do. Clearly something she's thought about like a lot, talks about all the time. And that's what's like definitely going to happen. Whereas um, Medicare for all is like she co-sponsored the bill. And then I don't know if I've ever heard her like mention it again um, unless she's asked a direct question. But at least like in a theoretical book writing sense, like it's really both and here. Break? Opioids? Research? More opioids, more opioids research. I love it. All right, let's take that break. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So we have a paper from JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, It is titled Association of Pharmaceutical Industry Marketing of Opioid Products with Mortality from Opioid-Related Overdoses. And the takeaway is there is an association between these two things. Just to set the groundwork for this, this is looking at payments that drug makers are making to doctors. And we're not talking about like bags of cash. A lot of the times we're talking about bringing in lunch. <laughs> we're talking about bringing in lunch to a doctor's office yeah. and then you, you talking Venmo about- the doctor is your bribes now. Exactly. <laughs> Venmo's not that secure. You, you bring Venmo in a sandwich bribe. and inside the sandwich there's a <laughs> money sandwich. But so so what often happens in kind of the drug marketing world is you have pharmaceutical companies who swing by, drop off Sandwiches, lunch, you know, Ford providers. Some free samples. Some samples, some pamphlets, maybe talk a little bit about their products. Um, It it can feel like something of an innocuous thing. You know, we're talking about these payments. They're not usually these multi-thousand dollar payments. A lot of the, you know, marketing that happens in the U.S. between drug makers and providers is providing meals. But what they find is, you know, pretty striking and worth paying attention to, where they find that marketing of opioid products to physicians was associated with increased opioid prescribing and with more mortality from overdoses. They find that the marketing was widespread, that um, nearly 70,000 doctors were marketed to by opioid companies from um, 2013 through 2015. But $40 million was spent across those people. So again, like no one's getting like crazy super rich off of this, but this money is out there and it is does seem to be pretty significantly influencing prescriber behavior. One of the things they find in this study is that for every three additional payments to a doctor per 100,000 people in their county, you see three additional payments one year and the deaths are 18% higher the year afterwards. That the impact of these kind of seemingly small payments, it turns out, can be quite large. So I think, you know, when I look at this paper, there's two things that kind of stand out to me about it. One is just the fact that we have this data, which we actually didn't a decade ago. The reason that this is all public is a tiny part of the Affordable Care Act created this database where it is now required that these lunches be made public and filed with the government where you can actually go and look up any payment that your doctor took from a drug maker or a device maker. Um, ProPublica has done a really nice job cleaning up this data, making it searchable. So we wouldn't have even known this a decade ago. This is only because the Affordable Care Act mandated that this information be reported. The second is I think it should make us look a lot more critically at these transactions that are happening, that that it, you know, not just for opioids, which is one place where you see, you know, this terrible increase in mortality, but really with any sort of product. I think it is easy for physicians to say, you know, it's just a sandwich. It's I'm a medical professional. I've gone to years of training. I'm not going to be swayed by this. But I think this paper and some other research is pretty good evidence that it does seem to be doing something related to 
prescriber behavior. And, you know, we might want to think about policy solutions that are going to not just make this public, but perhaps make it a lot less possible for drug companies to keep bringing lunches into doctor offices. Yeah, to take a bit of an Elizabeth Warrenian view on this, I mean, I think what this paper does, and it's not a completely new idea by any means, and it's not an unintuitive idea, but the drug companies are heavily complicit in the opioid crisis. And one way in which they're complicit is aggressively marketing a highly addictive drug um, to doctors and 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 where possible even to, you know, through doctors and, and through other means to, to the public. And there can be a tendency to look at the opioid crisis. I think that compared to crises that have not primarily hit white communities, we have been quite compassionate um, in the way our national narrative around opioid addiction has emerged. But it's still a narrative of individual choice, right? It's a narrative that is more more gentle in the sense of, oh, people in very bad straits and they had lost their jobs and, you know, like it's, you know, despair in, in, in these communities and, you know, they didn't see the future getting better for them. So it isn't, you know, it, it hasn't been sort of a crime and fear and irresponsibility narrative, but it has been a personal narrative. And I think what one of the, what these papers suggest is there's really a, a quite structural dimension to this. Um, Individual people, like for some combination of them or, or, or some sub, subgroup of them, they will get very, very, very addicted to these drugs. And what was happening is somebody was addicting to them to these drugs. They were getting prescribed these drugs by a doctor. And their doctor, in many cases, was prescribing these drugs at the behest of marketing from pharmaceutical companies. And so the idea that what's happening is you have desperate, out-of-work ex-machinists in New Hampshire who are just, like, demanding opioids. And on the one hand, they shouldn't have done that. But on the other hand, you know, like, uh, we, you know, we should be compassionate to their situation. Like, no, it's certainly not just that. We had a huge effort on the part of drug companies to get more opioids prescribed and individuals got these opioids prescribed, probably thought they were quite safe and then found themselves addicted to opioids. And in some cases later on overdosing or having a family member overdose from opioids. It's a very, very sad story. And, it, you know, it's another one of these things, again, to to, to put on my, my Elizabeth Warren hat, where we... We have not seen people called to account for it. We have not seen uh, um, any kind of societal reckoning for what has been done to these communities by people who made a lot of money doing it. And like this is a place where um, a lot of like <laughs> like low level drug dealers go to jail for for addicting people to opioids, but high level drug dealers do not. And so like there is a there is a kind of um, you know lawlessness at the top there, or at least like normlessness that is disturbing. For one thing. I I just, as a journalist, find the lack of um, professional ethics in the medical community a little bit striking. Um, we would not let reporters just, like, get tons of free shit secretly from companies that they cover. Like, that's not how you do things. Um, and you, you – there is always a, a line, right, where, like, look, if you cover something – you need to get information about the thing. To get information about the thing you're covering, it is often helpful to have some access to the principles there. Um, but then, you know, you have to mediate your your lack of, you know, potential loss of access with, with being tough. It is also conceivable that somewhere along the way, you'll be in somebody's office and they'll give you a cup of coffee and, you know, who knows, maybe you're deeply in their debt for for the $1.50 that, that would have cost you someplace. But like, 
the kind of stuff that happens in the healthcare sector. I, I used to live by the convention center in, in Washington. You would see, right, like different medical specialties would come and they would have their conference, right? And the conferences would be sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. And like you can see, it's like they're throwing parties for the doctors and then this and then that. And like the whole purpose of that is to compromise their medical advice. And you could have a law against it, I guess. But as long as like the view of doctors is that it is good that they should take bribes from pharmaceutical companies rather than giving people objective medical advice, I don't think there's any law you're going to pass that's going to stop the doctors from finding a loophole in it. It's like they need to decide as a peer group that like actually it's really bad for doctors to take bribes. And then if you say to your friend the doctor, oh, hey, I just went on this thing with the pharmaceutical company, that the other guy's going to say you shouldn't do that. Like that's like, – like what people are thought of by their peers like is very important, right? And like nobody is perfect in life and no profession has like a totally bulletproof code of conduct, right? But like there are things that doctors consider to be acceptable that like they shouldn't consider acceptable and that we would not right. consider No, it's acceptable. like if I told you, hey, Matt, I had this great weekend. You know, the insurance companies took me out to the Bahamas. Like I, you would be like, Sarah, like what are you doing? That's and, not OK. And if you went on an insurance company junket to the Bahamas to go do a story, because you could imagine a scenario in which Sarah comes back with a feature and it's like this is what the insurance company is are plotting to, you know, this is their political response to growing democratic interest. But like you would have to say in the story like that you went on the thing. We would, there would be like 80 billion conversations with editors about like can the company pay for the air? It would be a big deal where you wouldn't just like go and then not disclose anything to anybody, right? Like I have never had a doctor tell me before they make a recommendation for a treatment about what like industry – ties or sources they have. And, and we should say some of these rules have gotten tighter, particularly in certain states in recent years. Like there have been efforts to begin cracking down on this. Um, and but, but, you know, probably there should be more. I think there's always been a very good question about whether or not you should just like have pharmaceutical advertising in the ways we currently think of it at all, whether or not like that's just like particularly like direct to consumer, but uh, j just like in general, like I like this is a different class of product that has different risks, um, you know, Drugs are different, right? Like we treat drugs differently all the time. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that is a lot less powerful than OxyContin that is not allowed uh, whatsoever in any state, uh, much less to be advertised uh, to doctors or to anyone else. I don't want to like go too hard against the ethics of the medical profession because I, I do think that, you know, individual people do different things and, and, and different rules exist in different places. But I do think that this should be a period of reckoning and reflection. Um, a lot of very powerful institutions and industries were complicit in creating a massive, terrible public health crisis that has killed tens of thousands of people. And the question of how to make sure that never happens again is a good one and a hard one. I'm not saying that what they thought they were doing was doing that, right? Obviously not. Um, you know, and, and even the doctors who do go on these things, I think if they thought like these opioids would be killing their patients, they would have thought twice. Um, but even so, terrible, terrible, terrible mistakes were made. And I don't know, like, I don't know that just like moving on is the right thing here. Like, I honestly, I, I've like come to believe that a role Congress should play is to have many more things that are on the level of sort of like 
like the 9-11 commission, or I always forget the name of the commission in the aftermath of the Great Depression, but there was one that was pretty important then too. Um, and there was an effort to do this in the financial crisis run by Phil Angelides, but uh, I do think that it would be good to have more periods where we just try to understand what happened and call people at least to public account, not to not even necessarily to, to exact retribution, but to just make sure that, that these things really happen, that we don't just sort of like move on without learning the lessons. And I think here, like this paper, again, it's not a shocking paper. Paper. More opioid marketing leads to more opioid deaths. Like, sure, like I would have predicted that correlation too. But it is a paper that, like, said, like, another way of putting it is that um, pharmaceuticals companies were spending money and doctors were taking the results of that spending and patients suffered tremendously. Now, maybe some also, I mean, some people do benefit from opioids, so it, it may not be perfectly clear, but, but something went really wrong here. The craziest thing, you know, this is not in the, the story, but a, a journalistic account that, that came out recently, right, was inside the pharmaceutical company where the guy who, um, I, I think he was the, the inventor of uh, OxyContin or something, was was like warning the people higher up in the chain of command, like, this is super addictive. And like somebody else came down with a memo and was like, that's great. We're going to sell a ton of these pills. And it's like, eh. You know, I mean, it's to, to your point, Ezra, right? I mean, not just about like the specifics of the marketing, right? But like of like the whole thing, right? It's like where is the the inquiry leading to both just like facts and also like shame, right? Like something that happens when there are like these big things and, and you know, information comes out and people are on TV. And you remember the tobacco executives in the 90s all need to be up there and like talking about like why did they lie to people about the addictiveness of nicotine and stuff. It's like it changes the acceptability of certain kinds of behavior. Like you can't run a pharmaceutical company without recruiting a lot of very skilled and well-trained scientists to like do this work, right? And so a, a question for all these companies is like, is being a pharmaceutical researcher something that seems like a good and worthwhile thing to do with your life that you'll be proud to tell people of? Like, I am working to develop new medicines that help cure people. Or does it seem like a like scummy, low-rent profession where you're like trying to get people hooked on medicine that that kills them, right? So like companies have a good reason to care about their public image. And if there was emphasis on finding the senior side of it, like that becomes a reason for executives to not do bad things and to focus on, it's obviously very useful work, right? Like it's important that we have pharmaceutical research. And like these companies have like a good story to tell about themselves, but like there's also a lot of bad stories and like they need to decide what the balance is. Well, and, you know, when we think about policy solutions to this, one of the things they point out in the paper is that New Jersey recently passed a law that caps um, pharmaceutical payments to physicians at $10,000 annually. It's good they are taking on the issue, but it feels like a very weird statement of policy that, like, it's okay to take some money, but once you get to 10000 like, they're going to be too... It seems to acknowledge that these payments are a problem, but it also acknowledges the huge power that pharma has in lobbying and says, okay, like... And it really doesn't get it. You know, one of the things they say in this paper, they don't expect that to be very influential because, like, it takes a lot of lunches to get to, like, $10,000. Like, you could probably be bought lunch most days of the week, and that's what most of these transactions are. Like, most of these transactions are not... You know, there definitely are cases of doctors who become consultants for the industry, are getting big speaking fees for speaking on behalf of pharmaceutical companies. But it, it doesn't seem like, you know, 
that is quite going to be the type of law that um, that solves this problem. Yeah, that's a lot of money. A lot of lunch. A lot of sandwiches for $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, something, something to consider uh, But while you ponder your lunch or however else you, you listen to podcasts. Um, so thanks to everybody out there uh, for, for listening. Um, you know, hop into the Weeds Facebook group, of course, if you have some uh, suggestions for perhaps a more reasonable dollar limit on bribes that should be made to doctors uh, or whatever else. Uh, thank you to our producer, Jeffrey Guild, and the Weeds will return on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.